You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I know you're waiting for our tagline, 40 years thereof. It's coming. But first, you've heard me on this platform touting NRS, a great company whose many dedicated employees I get to see in action. NRS Pay has recently launched its new cost-cutting program called Cash Discount. The way it works is any vendor using NRS Pay Cash Discount has their sale register tabulating automatically a dual pricing, which offers customers a choice of a cash payment, which could result in an up to 4% discount over swiping their card. If your business meets the $18,000 a month threshold, there's absolutely no monthly fee to incur. NRS Pay Cash Discount makes it less expensive to accept credit cards, so you'll save money while helping your customers save at the same time. NRS is offering a time-limited deal right now on this state-of-the-art system. You'll get a free card reader with zero hidden fees, no long-term contract, and no early termination fee, which means you can switch your processing plan without penalty. NRS Pay is a proud part of the IDT Corporation that I've been associated with for over 10 years and has integrity built into its corporate DNA. I know its founder, its officers, and salespeople, and they truly stand by their product and will help you with live stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Check nrspay.com for more information or call 833-289-2767. And now, Emeritus Rex. 75 years of Medina Sisrael. This is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruben Yeshua Pupko, Montreal. Rabbi Pupko informs me, was the newest site of clearly anti-Semitic hate and terror. Rabbi Pupko, why don't you, let's get straight to the news here. What happened in Montreal? Overnight, uh, Monday, early Tuesday morning, uh, it was discovered that two Molotov cocktails had been thrown at Jewish sites in Dollar des Hommes. That is a uh, a suburb of Montreal. It was uh, the Beth Tikva Synagogue, and across the street from the Beth Tikva Synagogue, the Federation of Montreal has a satellite office in Dollard, and uh, there was a Molotov cocktail throw there. Minimal damage, but profound, you know, trauma is probably a strong word, but certainly profound concern. So, and and that suburb uh, is pre- is predominantly Jewish or has a small Jewish no, presence no, no, there? No, 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 no. It has a significant Jewish population, but it's not predominantly Jewish, no. I just want to make a couple of points about Dollar before I move on to the other areas of Montreal. Two years ago, during the last time Gaza was in the news, there were also incidents in uh, in Dollard. There was a an Arab girl who went around on video pointing out the Jewish homes, you know, obviously in a mischievous, nefarious way to to be targeted. There were Israeli flags that were torn down outside the Hebrew Foundation School, which is adjacent to the synagogue in, in, in Dollard. So again, it's, it's happened before in Dollard. The, it's interesting, the member of parliament representing that area, uh, Zubari, is, 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 is an Arab Muslim who I remember from years ago as a anti-Israel student activist uh, on, the, uh, on Concordia campus in Montreal. He has met with the Jewish community, claimed to have moderated over the years, but, uh, but he's the member of parliament from that area. It has an Arab population, but not significant. Mostly the Arabs and Muslims in Montreal do not live in that area. But the way this event is being perceived in the community is that it's directly tied to the uh, Hamas rallies that have been taking place. 
In other words, terrible incitement has gone on. What, what, at the last rally uh, in Montreal uh, over the weekend, a guy named Adal Shukari spoke. He's an imam of a mosque in a neighborhood called Rosemont. He spent six years, I believe it was, in detention or house arrest for suspected links to terror groups. And he got up and he gave a horrendously inflammatory speech. Uh, thankfully, this caught the attention not only of the Jewish community, but the broader community and members of the National Assembly. That's our like what would be uh, comparable to a state legislature in uh, in the U.S., uh, and the premier of the province, again, comparable to a governor in the U.S., have roundly denounced him and have called for police investigation. Uh, we met with the police yesterday in the aftermath of the attack on the synagogue and the federation office. And much of the conversation was taken up with the investigation of this imam. Because remember, here in Canada, we have hate speech laws in contrast uh, to the states. There are greater restrictions on free speech in Canada than there are in the U.S., and hate speech is a crime. Incitement to genocide is a crime, as it is elsewhere. I'll read you what Sharkawi said, actually. We, he spoke in Arabic. We have the uh, English translation. He said the following, O oh Allah, do what the enemy of Gaza deserve. O oh Allah, number them in number and kill them as a swarm. Do not leave a single one of them alive. And this, this is the imam. Right. This is obviously very troubling. Um, and I'm sure, you know, the rabbinic leaders took it very serious. Are you ramping up security in your uh, shoal because of this? It's hard to ramp it up. We've already, uh, since the beginning, since October 7th, everybody's been ramped up. So, uh, what is, what is being increased? Uh, our police patrols, community security network volunteers are out in greater numbers and greater frequency. So, uh, everyone is, uh, you know, a little more, uh, uh, you know, a little more cautious uh, this morning. Let's stay in Canada just for a second, and maybe this will segue into some other things. Canada, of course, is a member of the G7, and I believe they did issue a statement, correct? I mean, it wasn't the best statement in the world, but it was certainly a very positive one that supported Israel generally, uh, supported the uh, elimination of Hamas, but did cause, but did call for humanitarian pauses. There's some debate about language, vocabulary, semantics, what these words mean, what's the difference between a pause and a ceasefire. But um, uh, but, but they did call for pauses for humanitarian reasons. Right. Well, look, ceasefire in its broadest definition, the things that uh, Rashida Tlaib and others are calling for would mean that everything stops and Hamas is not punished and Hamas stays in place. That's what ceasefire would oh, mean. Anybody we- calling for a ceasefire is calling for one thing and one thing only – Calling for the vulnerability of Israel. That's what that's what they're calling for, and they're calling a ceasefire means save Hamas. Yes. That's, that's what a ceasefire means. Uh, humanitarian pauses to bring in aid to allow people to go to the south. You know, I I, I don't think anybody can, uh, you know, has serious reservations about that. Even Bibi Netanyahu himself kind of inched himself closer to the to, to language like that. They're trying to come up with different language to describe what they're willing uh, to offer. But I, I have to say, what's what's interesting is here we are 31 days into this, and the unity of Israel hasn't cracked. Uh, the determination from the left to the right to eliminate Hamas hasn't wavered. Determination of the army to get the job done is certainly very high. Motivation is very high. 
And I have to say from, from an outsider's, you know, we, none of us understand military strategy uh, all that well, but certainly what, what it appears is that Israel is moving slowly and methodically in a way which has, uh, which uh, spares uh, Israeli lives in the army and spares Palestinian lives in the civilian population. They're moving slowly and methodically and they're getting the job done. I, I, they're, they're also, I think, uh, showing, you know, if you hear their reports and you listen, uh, they are showing to the world how the tunnel system is under the hospitals, leading to the hospitals, uh, all those vulnerable places. Again, you know, this is the type of thing which, you know, we talked about it in, in every single program. And, 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 and again, I'm just going to call out uh, David Remnick, the chief editor of the New Yorker magazine, who went to Israel, who has friends in Israel, who's been reporting any of them who once again talk about this equivalency and talk about Israeli restraint and talk about uh, how somehow the Israeli armies, the killing that, that is happening – is somehow a byproduct of Israeli hate. It, it, it's so maddening because it's clearly, as you have said, as I have said, as everyone has said, who has any seicho, this is Hamas's problem. They're the ones who did it. And and nobody is is even registering this. It's, 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 I have to tell you, there was an article this, this morning in the New York Times written by Ben Hubbard based on interviews that he's conducted with Hamas political leadership uh, outside and, and, and some of the military leadership inside. And uh, it's a fascinating article because it basically explains Hamas's motivation here. Hamas felt that uh, the Palestinian uh, issue was falling off the agenda, that uh, it was being shunted aside, as it certainly was, that uh, Gulf countries were making peace with Israel, that it was no longer high on the agenda. And they simply wanted it to make sure they weren't going to continue to be ignored. And they, and they committed this barbaric butchery in order to put their cause back on the table. This, I mean, this is exactly their strategy for the last 50 odd years uh, of using terrorism, using terrorism to put themselves on the international agenda. And sadly, it has worked for them in the past, right? You know, if you're old enough to remember the 70s and the plane hijackings and everything else, it put the Palestinian cause on the agenda. Agenda of, of of many, and that's what they wanted to do again this time. It was a, it just simply, it is the quintessential definition of terrorism. You know, when again in the the most recent New York, I'll say it again. You know, Remnick tries to sort of have both sides. He mentions the exterminationist uh, uh, language of Hamas. And then again, balances it with somebody called Sukkot. I'm not sure who this guy is, that somehow he is somehow part of the same balance, what he's calling for. There's no question there are idiots in Israel who believe horrendously foolish things. And not only that, are lack any uh, instinct to uh, repress their pronouncing of these horrendous things, which to an outside observer may say, oh, you know, the Palestinians have their crazy people. The Israelis have their crazy right. people. They're all they're all nuts, right? You know, a pot, you know, a pox of both their houses. You know, who cares? But the reality is, the insane, violent uh, rhetoric and violent ideas that are in Gaza are not an anomaly. They're not an exception. They're not criticized by anybody in Gaza. Those that rhetoric characterizes Gaza. The rhetoric that comes from some extremists in Israel, does not characterize Israel. These are bizarre anomalies in an otherwise 
pretty civilized country. And the problem is there are some Jews uh, amongst the settlers who believe that you prove your Jewish bona fides by how willing you are to anger others or to say things that are offensive. That somehow shows you don't care what the Gentiles think. And if you have this adolescent need to continually demonstrate, we don't care what anybody thinks, we're going to say whatever we want. I mean, that's just foolish. It's reckless, and it also hurts Israel. And the settler violence against Arabs, which has increased, which is a painful, painful story, which has been denounced by by, by the rabbis in that community. I mean, an idiot like Ben Gavir, and I don't have a better word, you know, dismisses its significance by referring to it as graffiti. I mean, it's... You know, there are people in this government that that should not be holding positions of, of authority or, or, you know, it, it's, it doesn't. These are the wrong people. I'm a right wing guy and Ben Gavir does not talk for me. Smotrich does not speak for me. No. And when that other moron this week talked about nuking Gaza, uh, what does it even mean? Who talks like that? Let's talk a little bit about stuff that's happening over here uh, in the U.S., there was an election uh, last yesterday. It was uh, the 2023 election day. Uh, many New Yorkers and New Jersey residents were very happy that they didn't have to go to work. They didn't necessarily show up in the polls in great numbers. I think what I have seen from the analysis of the election was that uh, Biden didn't necessarily score a win, but Democrats seemingly across the United States uh, still have a very strong hold on the levers of power. The overturning of Roe v. Wade, which the Democrats denounced as some kind of, you know, fascist assault on freedom, has turned out to be a, a an extraordinary motivating tool for the Democratic Party because the Republicans, in the wake of the overturning of Roe v. Wade, overreached. Right. And, and part of it, I guess, was... Uh, the sense that the backers of these Republican candidates were extremely uh, connected to biblical ideals and were against what they considered uh, infanticide. So I think that is part of why they pushed the agenda of their backers and the people who were bankrolling them. The, it, it did backfire because, as, as you can see in Ohio, I think they actually passed – I know what you would call it, but a statement that every abortion, no matter at what stage, is constitutionally guaranteed. Listen, there was a major shift in how people viewed elections. And this starts with George W. Bush's second term. Karl Rove, who was a political genius, came up with a plan and it turned out to be successful for George Bush to get elected. Until that point in American politics, uh, everyone assumed the way to win elections is to appeal to the broad middle. What Karl Rove realized incorrectly, but unfortunately, is that the way to win elections is not necessarily to appeal to the broad middle, to expand your tent, right? You have your hardcore supporters and then expand the tent was to drill down in your national, in your natural constituency and energize your people to show up. And that's what has happened since. I mean, Donald Trump, you know, in the years he was in office did nothing to expand his popularity. He did nothing to throw a bone to centrists, uh, you know, to join him. But what he did was he kept energizing his most likely supporters and, and getting them to show up in great numbers is the way to win. I mean, if you look at the election results in 2020, I mean, Trump got a lot more votes the second time than he did the first time, but the Democrats energized their people to a great 
extent by being anti-Trump. So it was not nobody in that election tried to reach out. Right. Biden didn't try to reach out and get some Trump supporters. Trump didn't try to reach out and get some Democrats to vote for him. Both of them were great, were wonderfully successful in this in energizing their people to show up. There was a huge turnout. But, you know, the, the Democrats won because of in a handful of states, you know, by 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 relatively narrow margins, we're we're able, we're able to swing the election. Well, you, you know, you, you talk about, again, obviously, I think. The uh, those Republicans you said were guilty of overreach. I think we're also trying the same thing. They did not understand the power of uh, the Hisnagdus, as we say in Hebrew, against them. They probably felt that their support was was stronger than it really was among the fundamentalist Christian right. right. And I think because of that, they have gone down to defeat, uh, also because some of them tethered themselves to Trump. Uh, speaking of which, by the way, the, uh, there is a CNN poll that is out that indicates for the first time, at least from CNN's perspective, that uh, Trump beats Biden in a general election. And that comes on the heels of a New York Times poll which showed uh, Trump ahead in five swing states. That's another instance of, of, in this case, it was the Democrats who overreached. They, 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 they won the election in 2020. And then Biden, who ran as a moderate, governed uh, as if he was the, uh, a prisoner of the progressive camp of the Democratic Party, with wild overspending, which uh, triggered inflation. But, uh, you, you know, and the left hurt itself before the 2020 election by overreaching on defunding the police on transgender rights. Those are the things which energize the republic. Do, do you think it's possible that this New York Times poll and the CNN poll that was taken recently, do you think that some of the lower numbers for Biden can be directly tied to his strong support for Israel? No, I don't think they can do with it. No, I mean, just, uh, Americans don't vote on foreign policy. Yeah, the only one that might hurt him is Michigan. Now, here's the other question. Uh, are they going to stay home rather and, and let Trump get elected rather than showing up for Biden? I mean, I, I don't believe that. But again, it may it may suppress some and depress some of the vote. I don't know. But what more important for, God, for Joe Biden is that there are more and more voices in the traditional Democratic uh, camp who are who are who are uh, publicly talking about entertaining the idea of him stepping aside. David Axelrod, right, the genius of the Obama campaigns. Right, David Axelrod said Biden should step aside. But again, Biden is the probably the weakest Democrat against Biden against Trump at this point. But with just before we leave Michigan, uh, you know, we we have to once again talk about how Rashida Tlaib I think was censured. Yes. Uh, in, in, in the House of Representatives. Uh, she remains defiant on her Twitter page. She's going to speak truth to power. She's from Detroit. Uh, e- even though, again, she tried to explain how from the river to the sea, uh, really doesn't mean anything except, uh, a, a, a celebration of humanistic values and love. <laughs> I see. It's, it's incredible. It's incredible. Yet again, it's Orwellian. It's, it's strange. Uh, as we move back to Washington, are, are there going to be buses from Montreal for the November 14th March on Washington? There are going to be charter planes. There are. So what do you think? Are you going? Yes. I mean, well, yeah, everyone should go. I mean, it's important. Are you afraid that there's going to be some counter demonstrations? Where's the march going to take place, as far as you know? Uh, I, I'm assuming in front of the White House, in the Capitol. 
I was reminded when I heard about the first heard about the Washington rally of the 100 Orthodox rabbis, two of them were my two grandfathers who, who came to Washington to demand America do more for the victims of the Holocaust, and FDR denied them an audience. I remember 1987 when 400,000 Jews showed up in Washington when Reagan was meeting Gorbachev to demand freedom for Soviet Jewry, and Reagan walked him to the window of the West Wing, opened the window, showed him the demonstrators and said, Gorbachev, do you need this? Really? One of the many things that were done that ultimately led to the freedom for Soviet jury. And now here we have to go back again. So, I mean, there's a tragic necessity for every generation of Jews to stand up. That is our destiny. We know the fight is worthwhile. We know the cause is just. And it falls upon the shoulders of Jews uh, anywhere in the U.S. and beyond in Canada to show up and show the flag and uh and, and and to, you know, make a clear statement where we stand, that we stand four square behind the state of Israel. Yeah, so let us hope it, it will indeed be a uh, uh, an event that's momentous and will change perhaps the direction and the minds uh, of, of of many in the government. Yeah, I mean, universities closing down for the day, the high schools in New York are closing down, everybody's busting, everyone's busting everybody. It's going to be a wonderful day. Let's talk a little bit as we end here. You know, Trump has been disappointing to say the least about almost everything he's been saying lately. There are five candidates tonight on the debate stage. It's been whittled down to five. Uh, I think that the, you know, the, the, the pro, there are two very pro Israel supporters on that stage. And that, of course, is Nikki Haley and Tim Scott. Do you think there's any chance in a snowball's chance in hell that Nikki Haley can somehow elbow out and somehow emerge as the candidate? Listen, I'll tell you, she's doing better than I thought she would be doing. Listen, I think a lot of it comes down to what happens in Iowa. If you dig deep, and again, I'm quoting people who are anti-Trump, but are traditional conservatives, who are deeply pessimistic about the prospects of anyone replacing Trump, but they do find slight reasons for hope in the numbers that show that among Trump supporters, there's an openness to consider an alternative candidate. And if Nikki Haley does better than expected and comes closer to Trump's numbers, there is a chance. There is a chance, especially if down the road Trump's popularity begins to wane. She will become the the assumed, you know, replacement. But it's uh, it's tough. It's a tough battle. Trump seems to have a stranglehold on the primaries right now by a wide margin. There's another factor here, which I, I noted in preparing for this talk, but I did see that the five candidates who are on stage have all signed a statement that they will support whoever the eventual candidate is. Right. Which means that, you know, <laughs> which means, and right now it looks like Trump anyway. So it sounds like, yeah, you know, we're debating here, but we're going to, we're going to support the candidate and 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 not just support you know not just say I'm all right with it but actually go out there and and argue for that person to win even Chris Christie who I think has been the most critical of Trump uh signed that pledge so it, it, that bothers me because let, let's put it this way if if Haley doesn't get the nomination which is probably she won't she's going to be tainted in 2028 as someone who supported Trump, who had to go out there and fight for Trump. Listen, signing a statement, is that, you know, it depends what she does in a campaign. I, I wouldn't, I think it's too early to say that. Well, 
let I, I maybe we will bump into each other over there uh, near the reflective are, pool. Are you going to be in Washington? After what you've said, how could I not be? All right, we will catch you hopefully soon. Uh, actually, next week we'll actually talk right after the the rally, so we'll be able to get uh, your reflections about being one of perhaps half a million that they're hoping are going to show up. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next time. Be well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please take a moment to share this or any of the many episodes available on our platform with friends in order to help grow our community. Until next time, shalom. Shalom.